Hi, and welcome to the Untold Arizona podcast, a series from KJZZ News. I'm Stina Sieg. Whether you were born here or you're new to the state, we're willing to bet there are some Arizona stories you may not know. Hoover Dam? Yeah, everybody knows about that. But we have a story about the very first dam. We're going to the Elvis Chapel. And no, it's not like Mine is about to reopen in Skull Valley. Have you ever stopped in Dateland for a date shake? The tepary bean weathered Arizona summers for some... How are archaeologists tracing ancient turquoise back to its source? 1960s. And while not as famous as Tombstone, it was just as bloody. This is Untold Arizona. And this episode is about second chances. This first story is about more than earning a badge. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. So goes the scout law of the Boy Scouts of America. As KJZZ's Jimmy Jenkins reports, a group of Boy Scouts is following those tenants to find a path to a better life. On my honor, I'll do my best to do my duty to God and my country to obey the Scout law. Troop 4 is like any other Boy Scout troop. They start their weekly meeting with the Scout Oath. Today, the group of gangly teens gathers around Assistant Scoutmaster Avery Thresher as he shows them how to use a compass and map. Classic Scout stuff. So next thing we're going to do is go outside and do an exercise to set their pace to see how far their stride is. Everybody lines up on the basketball court and counts off, but they can't go too far. Across from the court is tall double fencing topped with razor wire. Scout Troop 4 is made up of inmates at the Adobe Mountain School, a secured facility for juvenile offenders just north of Phoenix. It's the only Boy Scout troop behind bars in the country. There are 154 boys and 12 girls aged 14 to 17 at the facility. Most are here for about eight months. Jesse Etheridge is working with Assistant Scoutmaster Alan Calhoun. So you're off like a few degrees, right? So if we extended that five miles and you weren't following the line, what would happen? You wouldn't find the way. You'd be lost, right? Mm -hmm. So we could miss our next mark by lots. It's all about getting kids to review and address the reasons why they're here and you're going along a wrong path. Peter Luschak is the chief administrator of clinical and support services at Adobe Mountain. He says the scouting program keeps the kids active and helps build character. Positive thinking, making good choices, you know, being honest, trustworthy, those kinds of things. Luschak says the program is a success. More than 300 boys have gone through Troop 4, and they're expanding the program to include Girl Scouts later this year. Adobe Mountain doesn't track recidivism rates for the troop, but Luschak says the kids in the scouting program usually don't come back. Maurice Portley is a former juvenile court judge. He says one of the advantages of working with a young offender is you can make a bigger difference by intervening earlier. Like being a parent, you plant seeds and you hope that they flourish in time so uh, you know, when uh, the opportunity arises, the kid makes a better choice the next time. Portly, a former scout himself, says the Adobe Mountain program is effective because it helps scouts feel proud of themselves and puts them on a new path. Sometimes that path is boring and it's, you know, tiring, but you never get in trouble on that path. The path that I followed before wasn't the right path and I knew that, I just wasn't thinking. Thomas Mayo is a smiley 17-year-old who has a hard time sitting still. 
He used to have anger issues and was disrespectful to other kids on the yard, but now he says he doesn't act that way anymore. He's holding himself to a higher standard. I've known that now that it's not the thing to do, it's not a Boy Scout, it's not the way that a Boy Scout acts. The scouting program has helped him calm down and stay focused. He still gets in trouble, but less often, and his good behavior paid off. Thomas and Jesse get to go for a five-mile supervised hike outside the walls of Adobe Mountain. They're pursuing their second-class scouting rank, and Thomas is excited. Very excited, actually. Finally get to hike again. <laughs> it's early on the morning of the hike, but Jesse's ready to go, too. He's got a backpack full of snacks and a compass and map in hand. Feeling good. I'm actually wide awake. You know, I love to look at nature and see what's around. This is a new way to enjoy recreation. Scoutmaster Nancy Welton founded Troop 4 in 2007. She's here to see the boys off. And it's totally different than those behaviors that got them in trouble, those choices that landed them into Department of Juvenile Corrections. As Jesse and Thomas set out on their hike, their slim silhouettes ascend the nearby foothills. We strive to uh, elevate them to the point where they can stand up for themselves. That's our, that's our main hope is to give them those skills to survive out there. She says scouting will always be there for them, even if the boys lose their way. Jimmy Jenkins, KJZZ News, Phoenix. It's not always just people who get a second chance. Here's a tasty story about a little-known food grown in Arizona that's making a culinary comeback. Arizona has the oldest documented agricultural history in the country. Along with squash and corn, tepary beans thrived, even in the hottest months. Despite a brush with obscurity, the tepary is still around. KJZZ's Madiana Dale reports on how the tepary bean has survived a changing Arizona. Welcome Diner in Tucson serves a burrito that pays tribute to some of the oldest known foods grown in the state. Nice hot tortilla. Our uh, butternut squash is nice and crispy. Executive chef Michael Babcock adds corn and tepary beans to the squash. Together, these three sisters, as they're called, were the basis for agriculture in Arizona. As a chef, our jobs are to share culture and to share ingredients. and. We just want people to feel like they're connected with the land that they live in. The beans the diner uses are grown about 100 miles north on the Gila River Indian community. That's where Ramona Button grew up. I'm of the Akimaradam tribe, Akimaradam meaning river people. Her dad farmed to feed their family. She remembers how he called their horses in from the desert scrub in Pima. He would tell them, him, but the chichpk, oh, I'm a tai Come on in. It's time to work. It's time to plant. When Ramona was nine, he started to teach her what he knew. And so she joined a hundreds of years old legacy of Pimas who learned how to grow the tepary bean. My dad would say, this is more wholesome for you. Each tepary has more protein and fiber than something more common like a pinto. The small beans are white, brown, black, and some are speckled like robin's eggs. My father said, everything that I'm growing today, it might not exist unless somebody brings it back in. He stashed away beans in a chest, and after he died, Ramona and her husband Terry used them to start their farm. I never saw a tepary bean until I got here, and they became my favorite bean. 
When he followed Ramona to Arizona, Terry joined farm industry groups and studied the market. He realized two things. The number of native farmers was shrinking, and the proliferation of big box grocery stores hurt the market for traditional foods. Gary Paul Nabhan is a farmer, scientist, and Teparibian evangelist. He lives outside Patagonia, Arizona, not far from where he first saw the beans in the wild. There's a way that I can't describe in words where teperis to me taste like the desert itself. They have this nuttiness and this resilience. Nabhan began researching the plants for his thesis and learned they could grow on monsoon rains alone. Tepary beans are deeply part of cultures here in the desert. There were over 30 different cultures in Mexico and the United States that grew tepary beans. He thinks the drought-tolerant teparies could become a solution for growing food in a hotter and drier Arizona. We're going to see the agriculture of the future in Arizona and other states looking much more in harmony with the desert. This is where we planted our, our white tapery beans. Gabriel Mendoza is part of a new generation of farmer. He supervises food production at the San Javier Co-op, a community farm outside of Tucson. He cracks open a brittle yellowed pod and smooth white beans fall into his hand. My agriculture has taught me more about myself than I've ever known. That allows me to think about how it, it affects more than just um, the people around me. Before he worked at San Javier, Mendoza spent more than a decade living away from the reservation. Learning traditional foods, it, it tied me back to a piece of my, my past of, of growing up. The demand for tepary beans is now growing outside native communities, but San Javier and the Buttons have to grow thousands of acres of cotton, alfalfa, and wheat to afford to grow 100 acres of teparies a year. The only way we're going to be able to enjoy the ability to continue to grow them is if we can make money doing it. Terry hopes that if the market continues to expand, it will create more opportunities for those on the reservation. Mariana Dale, KJZZ News, reporting near Sacatone. You've been listening to Untold Arizona. This has been the second Chances episode, with stories from KJZZ's Jimmy Jenkins and Mariana Dale. It was produced by Tiara Vian. The stories were edited by Mark Moran. The digital team is Jackie High, Sky Shout, Kaylee Schufeld, and Jean-Claire Sarmiento. For pictures, videos, and more, visit untold.kjzz.org. Have an untold Arizona story of your own? Drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using the hashtag UntoldArizona. And check out our Facebook group, where you can connect with more people who love a good Arizona mystery as much as you do. I'm Stina Seek. Thanks for listening.